tuned in to TV You Grew Up With, where we interview the people who created the greatest TV shows ever made. Here's your host, Jim Harrell. Welcome to TV You Grew Up With. I am Jim Harold, and so glad to be with you once again. And by the way, if you like what we're doing here with all these great stars, please subscribe in iTunes. It's absolutely free. Apple kindly named us a new and noteworthy podcast recently, so that's good news. But we need your support, but it's free. So, hey, all you got to do is click subscribe, so we'd appreciate it. And please spread the word to your friends who love classic TV and the people who made it. And we have somebody like that on the line today. I'm talking about Allison Angrim. Of course, she portrayed... Nellie Olson on that great 70s series, Little House on the Prairie, I believe it was seven years. And then she came back and did kind of a, a cameo on a later episode when they continued it on. But it's a, a very interesting experience because that is not the whole story. That's just the beginning of the story. She's done many, many things. She does a one-woman show. She's stand-up comic. Uh, she is a, an activist. And we're going to talk about some of the things that are important to her. And she has a very, very interesting career, not to mention her recent book, Confessions of a Prairie Bitch. And uh, we'll get into what she means by that. Uh, we're so glad to have her with us. Uh, Allison, welcome to the program today. Oh, hi. Yes. Hello. So I, I want to start out with this. Uh, I think you, you've you been quoted as saying, someone has called me a bitch to my face every single day of my life since I was 11 years old. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. I, absolutely. This, I talk about this in my book and in my, my comedy show, Confessions of Prairie Bitch, because it's true. The minute that show aired, the character hit a nerve. I mean, literally, I went to school the next day and it was like, you bitch! Um, there was no no rest for the wicked here. And it it really hit a nerve, and people did it. It's called me a bitch. And that's people said, why did you call your book bitch and say bitch in your show? Because people have been calling me this. I was at 12, the people calling me this. Um, so I've sort of, you know, taken back the word and embraced being hated, and uh, um, it seems to have worked for me. And, and, and certainly, you know, having betrayed Nellie Olson, and, and, and we got to admit, she kind of was a bitch, uh, <laughs> the character at least. Uh, but I mean, that's going to be tough growing up. You're a kid. Uh, you've not done anything to anybody. You're just playing the scene as written. In fact, you're doing a really good job because people are, uh, you know, we just had Don Wells on, who was Marianne on Gilligan's Island. Love and, her. Yes, we're and, good and yes, and, and, and in her case, you know, everybody thought, and she seems to be very much sweetness and light, but uh, she did such a great job of portraying that character, and you did such a great job with yours. You're kind of saddled with that for good or for ill the rest of your life. So maybe not now. It sounds like you've made peace with that now, but was that hard as a kid growing up and having everybody call you a bitch? Well, the thing is, is my, my family were all actors. My parents ran a theater in Canada, and my mother was uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost. My mother was Norma MacNeil, a famous voiceover artist. And she was Casper, and she was Gumby, and she was Sweet Bully Purebred, and she was uh, Davy of Davy and Goliath. So I knew my mother wasn't a talking green ball of clay <laughs> from a very early age. And and because my family were actors, we, we had actors, you know, other people were actors, our friends were all actors. So even as a little kid, you know, little kids often don't understand if somebody dies on TV. Oh, did they? I saw people get shot on some cop show on TV, and then they showed up at our house for dinner the next night. So early on, I figured, you know, I was like, okay, hello, not real. Uh, <laughs> these people are the actors. I knew all these people, and they'd be on one show, and then they'd be on another show. And my mother, the, her voice was coming out of the TV of all these different cartoons. So I understood from, you know, very early age, six, seven, eight years old, that people got up in the morning and went to work and pretended to be somebody else. And 
I had started working. I'd done a commercial and a couple little things as a very young child, six or seven. And then I did a movie when I was 10. And then I got Little House. But so I understood that, you know, and I also rather liked villains. I was one of those kids. I liked the horror movies. I loved Vincent Price. I always liked the villains. So here I go, and I, I, I read for Laura. I read for the part of Mary, too. Mm. I was like, not getting it. When I went <laughs> back and I saw those pages of Nellie, I was, I was like, oh, my God, it's the villain. Oh, my God. And so, of course, when I got it, I was ecstatic. I was like, oh, <laughs> and when you look at Little House, it, was, it could have been boring. It was a very happy show. Everyone was so nice. So when you have these wonderful characters like Mrs. Olsen and Nellie to, to you know, add some danger, some spice to the whole thing, they, we really kind of, you know, liven things up. It's very dull without it. So I was really proud of the fact I was Nellie. It was weird that people took it so hard. I mean, they threw things at me in the Christmas parade. I thought, like, oh. whoa, dude. Um, I guess if I, if I had been much younger, if I had been like seven or eight, like a lot of these kid actors are really young in right. major roles, or my family weren't in show business, and I didn't. I had not had the experience of knowing people and visiting sets and knowing that it was pretend. Maybe having people scream at me, I would have taken a lot more personally, and that would have been really rough. But you know, I was twelve, and I was like, "Yeah, okay." If they're yelling "bitch," that's shocking. But I've hit a nerve. They're talking about her, and well, you're supposed to hate her. So <laughs> clearly, I'm on the right track. It, I think it takes a special skill set. If you look at people like Joan Collins and Larry right? Hagman and people like you, it you takes a special skill correct. set to be I, a good I, villain. I even say in my act, any idiot can be liked. It takes talent to scare the crap out of people. <laughs> my motto. <laughs> um, what was that set like? I, I, I heard one interview where you said there was a little bit of high school there, you and other teenage girls interacting, mm -hmm. but what was that set in general and what was that experience uh, like for those seven years? Generally, it was really great. I mean, there's a lot of sets. I hang out with a lot of ex-child stars and I've worked with Paul Peterson as minor consideration trying to help some of the ex-child stars who've had issues. And there were a lot of sets that were really hard to be on for a child star growing up. Little House, not one of them. Um, they were very strict about things like school, which, you know, you see a lot of ex-child stars who aren't terribly well-educated, where apparently they weren't very strict about school on their Z. Um, We were very strict about that. Uh, there was always, people had parents or their guardians there, so there was a lot of participation. Um, you had also whole families working there. You know, Matt Laberto played Albert. Pat Laberto played Andy Garvey. So you had those two brothers. Melissa Gilbert's brother, Jonathan, was playing Willie. You had numerous sets of twins. So you had, like, entire families on the set involved in the whole thing. And I think that helped. And then Michael, he'd come out of Bonanza. So he really knew how things were run. It was extremely efficient. Um, the big story in Hollywood was that most nights we clocked out so that everyone could be home in time for dinner. We knocked off 5, 5.36 at the latest. There were no, these, there were no night shoots. Wow. We were on location. It was some special reason we were doing a night shoot in the woods or something. We we started ridiculously early, but if we were on the sound stage or even just in Cini, oh, we were out of the sound. We were out of there by five six o'clock. We didn't do uh fourteen seventeen hour days. My maybe squeeze up maybe a ten hour day because we'd start really early with the crew and stuff. But most of the actors, you had so much of the cast that were kids, and when you have people under eighteen. Yeah. All the people under 18, they got to be gone by eight hours plus lunch. They're gone in nine hours. So there's only so many scenes you can shoot without them. So it's like, well, okay, we'll start early in the morning, shoot everything with the kids. Then we'll have to take like another hour and shoot the stuff with the adults. And then we're out of here. 
one person who, of course, when you think Little House of the Prairie, of course you think Melissa Gilbert, but you think Michael Landon. And yep, the yep. thing is, is with Michael Landon, um, who obviously passed well before his time, uh, now I think more as, as we pass with time, people think of him as just an actor. But he was a lot more than that. I mean, he was the chief cook and bottle washer, wasn't he? Oh, no, no. Man was a genius. Okay, so even as early as Bonanza, when he's very young, Bonanza, Little Joe, he was directing some episodes and he was writing some episodes. And that's kind of why NBC and, and Ed Friendly had to write to the Little House books. Everyone kind of went, hmm. And so as soon as he came up in Anza, NBC said, well, we'll give you your own show, be a cop show or something glamorous. He's like, no, I want to do Little House of the Prairie. He's like, what? Um, <laughs> so, but he yeah, they wanted him. They knew he was really hot. I mean, the, the women loved him. His, his, his fan base was enormous by this time. They knew they had a cash cow there. But he, when he got Little House, he was the executive producer of the show. He was directing the show. He was writing the show. He was starring in the show. He was overseeing everything. He did it all. And everything went through him. And, I mean, he cast me. He cast, I, never, I never went to network. I understand there were a few people who did have to get network approval, but an enormous number of the cast members, Michael just said, no, I had the audition. I cast them. No, they're starting there. No, go away. Leave me alone. In fact, I think Pat Laberto started the same day he auditioned. He came down to the set and read, and they were like, good, can you start tomorrow morning? <laughs> so if he said somebody was on the show, they were on the show. Yeah, yeah, today they're called a showrunner, but that's what he was? He did He did it all. That's the thing. He was. He cast people. He was in, you know, we had, yes, we had a casting director. We had uh, Susie McRae. We had a casting director, but she would go to Michael and say, I found this person. You know, let me see him. And he would, he would drop what he was doing, come over from the set, and he cast everyone. He wrote most of the more interesting episodes. He had uh, certain directors he allowed. He allowed, you know, Bill Claxton, a couple of people to direct, and Victor French. But he directed the majority of the episodes. He wrote the majority of the episodes and started the man was the producer. And so, yeah, you know, he was complete. It was. It was. It was his vision of the show. One thing that I've always thought is odd, and, and is that people assume uh, that if you're on a show together, that you spend every week, waking day, and and people don't disconnect. You know, uh, what, this show started in 74, that's 41 mm -hmm. years ago? We had our 40th anniversary last year. So, yes. so, I mean, it's not like you're on the phone with Melissa Gilbert every day, although I bet a lot of people assume you are for some reason. Except we are. We were texting last night. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I, I said, <laughs> I, I said See, corrected. Most TV shows, no, they don't. Most TV shows, they can't wait to get away from each other. It's like, oh my God, is this thing over? Do I, can I not talk to people ever again? And most TV shows in Hollywood, they don't all talk to each other. But we became friends, and it was crazy. During the show, Melissa and I were having sleepovers at each other's house. Oh. So we were spending a lot of time together, and most people in the show have remained friends. Uh, um, I was just, okay, the other night, uh, my, my husband's in a band, and some of the other guys in his band play with another band, this guy Morris uh, Wade. It's really great. Well, <sighs> Teddy Lester the woman who sang Love Letters Straight from the Heart, who's also oh, on the yeah, She played yeah. Heather Sue. Well, we had, there was a party a Great few weeks ago. Um, Dan McBride, who, the guy I hit with the chicken in the restaurant, <laughs> Dan McBride, he had a party, and let's see, uh, Hersha, who you know as Mrs. Garvey, was there. Mm -hmm. Rachel, who was Baby Carrie, both played by twins. She and her sister played Baby Carrie, but Rachel was there. I was there. Uh, Dean Butler was there, who's Almanzo, and Teddy Lester. And we all had a party. 
and with all our various husbands and wives and whatnot. And then just the other night, uh, Kitty wanted to come see this band, so Bob and I went and picked her up, and Baby Carrie and Mrs. Garvey and Dan who played Henry Riley and Kitty Lester and I all went out to a club. We all had oh. dinner and caught a band. Wow. And then Melissa and I were carrying on on Twitter, and someone was posting something annoying on Twitter, and we gave him what for. And next thing I know, my phone beeps, and Melissa's going, can you believe that? And we're texting each other in the middle of the night. She's off in Michigan. Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> so, yeah, no, Melissa and I are texting and tweeting each other. We're all on Facebook. Uh, Charlotte Stewart, who played Miss Beetle, she and I are doing an event in June at the Memphis Film Festival, a fan autograph thing, the second weekend in June. We're working together on that. Um, but, yes, we... It's, the cast of Little House, I think, keeps in touch more than any television show ever. I think Gilligan's Island, because you had Dawn on, you know she was pretty close with a lot of the cast yep. members. Gilligan's Island, they got along. Some of the Bradys, some of the Waltons, Waltons get along pretty well, but it's like a handful of shows. But Little House, it's crazy how much time we spend together, 40 years later. Well, the 40th anniversary... We, we've had various events over the years because, you know, there's a real walnut grove in Minnesota. And, of course, mm-hmm. they have Little House in the Prairie Days every summer and people come out there. So they would have, like, just Dean Almanzo or just me or someone from the show. Well, for the 40th anniversary, we had, like, 11 of us. And we had an event in Wisconsin. We had one in Walnut Grove. We had a, a get-together in South Dakota. We even had a cast reunion in France with Karen Grassley, who was Ma, Caroline, uh, me, Charlotte Stewart as Miss Beetle, and Rodimus, Rodimus Parah, who was John Jr., Mary's boyfriend. And he was also, he was also Little Grasshopper on Kung Fu. Marvelous. <laughs> and uh, so Little Grasshopper on the game. So four of us from Little House in the Prairie in the south of France for a weekend. So literally worldwide 40th anniversary celebration. And the whole cast, we were going everywhere together. It was crazy. And so anyone who wasn't already in touch with the gang by the end of last year was. And as I said, I was already in touch with Dean and Charlotte and Karen. And Karen Grassley's up in San Francisco and Charlotte's in Napa. And um, I had occasion to go up there. My husband's office party was in San Francisco. It's like, great, we can go see Karen in a show because she still does a lot of theater. So I was able to go see her in a play. And... um Charlotte, when she was down in L.A., she and I did uh, the Vagina Monologues together, so we have wow. been able to do theater together. Um, so, yeah, so it's absolutely bananas. Um, we're all in touch with each other via Facebook and email and Twitter. And since Rachel and Hersha, Mrs. Coffee Baby here, live really near me, I see them pretty frequently. But, yes, I was literally last night texting with Melissa Gilbert. Well, that, that's great. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit about, or a lot about, uh, after Little House. What what right. was your direction after Little House? Okay, you finished this seven year, this great run. Uh-huh. What was what was your mindset and were you planning on staying in entertainment? Did you say maybe it's time for something else? Oh, yeah. Where, well, where I was were desperately you what I was doing is everyone was uh, desperately trying to get a career outside of Little House and it was the eighties and I was blonde and blue eyed and nineteen. So the idea was you'd be a sex symbol, you know, and have be in or as I said, I was only offered movies where I had to be naked, a cheerleader, or dead, or a combination <laughs> of all three. And this is so not my thing. So I luckily I started doing stand-up comedy as a teenager. So I was going all over the country. So I was able to go on the road as a stand-up. Um, as I said, my parents used to run a theater. So I had a background in theater and had been doing actual plays in theater since I was like 13 years old. So I did go uh, and do dinner theater and do that kind of thing. So I did theater and stand-up, 
And I did the usual um, Love Boat and Fantasy Island, which was, um, I was a hooker on Fantasy Island, because everyone should have that on their resume. I was a hooker on Fantasy Island. Um, <laughs> horrible. Um, I did that kind of stuff. The plane, boss, the plane. Then, you know, like, really the stand-up worked out, because since it was all these sort of like bimbo roles, and I was like, I don't like this. And I was like, oh, I'll do the stand-up. And then I really got into activism in the 80s. Um, Steve Tracy, who played my husband, Percival, on the show, he died of AIDS in 1986, and he went very public with his diagnosis, mm-hmm. which is very unusual at the time. And so that's when I started volunteering for AIDS Project Los Angeles for the hotline and various things, and I began speaking on AIDS prevention and how to help people, being your, your friends or family who are diagnosed, and how to get services. And I spoke on this stuff uh, all over the country, uh, different places, and raised money for different AIDS, HIV service organizations. Uh, people who are maybe a little bit younger than us uh, don't don't remember the the climate uh, around that time surrounding AIDS. I mean, I think the I think the person who was, uh, you know, the the one of the first faces for a lot of people was Rock Hudson. Um, yes, yes, and he didn't want to tell anyone, no. nor did Liberace. I, I would highly recommend, you know, you know, the Normal Heart. You know, go rent the Normal Heart, and 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 they, you know, finally made a movie of this. I had trouble even watching that; it was so upsetting because I do remember those days. Uh, also, um, Dallas Buyers Club, which was all about people trying to get the medications. Go mm-hmm. watch if you're a young person and you want to know how awful it was. Go watch Dallas Buyers Club and the Normal Heart. They're mm-hmm. very accurate. Um, it was terrifying. People didn't know. They thought they were going to get it off a doorknob. They thought they were going to get it from mosquitoes. They freaked out. Um, they burned down people's houses. Um, I was working with Tuesday's Child, an organization that helped family with children with HIV and AIDS. These were babies where the mother had you know, perhaps gotten a blood transfusion during the birth process and the baby was infected, or the husband was uh, an IV drug user and infected his wife, and now she and the baby were sick as well. And so we had all these families with HIV and their children who were ill. And we had to be in a secret location. We had clients who couldn't tell anybody where they were going. Um, Our first Christmas party, we only had 18 people because we invited everyone at the hospitals that children with cancer and leukemia, other diseases were welcome to come and get presents and hang out with Santa and come to our Christmas party for sick children. And they wouldn't come because no one would be seen at a Christmas party with children with AIDS. And, and one, um, one thing to set the stage: families had death threats and had they were burned out of their apartments. And these are children with AIDS. That's how bad it was. And, and and certainly this isn't that bad, but it certainly gives you an idea for the zeitgeist of the times. I remember, Rock Hudson had been on Dynasty, and there was this huge controversy because I guess he had shared an on-screen kiss with Linda right? Evans. Yes. And there was this whole tempest in a teapot. Did she know? Did she not know? And apparently, oh yeah, you're going to get it. That was the big one, as I said. When when Steve got sick and went public, I said I was in the Linda Evans position. Everybody seen me kiss him on TV. And as I say, you know, people say you're going to get H. I said we didn't exchange bodily fluids on the prairie. It wasn't that kind of show. I mean, Jesus, people. But people then they thought you could get it there touching somebody let alone kissing them on TV, a chase TV kiss. And and people really believed it was transmitted. It was crazy. So actors who'd even worked with someone with HIV, it was like, oh my God, do you have it? I mean, it was just ridiculous. Now, there's another subject that's very near and dear to your heart due to your, your own experience, um, childhood sexual abuse. And, and you made mm-hmm. quite a revelation in the early 2000s. Tell us about that and and your situation. 
Well, yeah, what happened is is um I'm I'm now uh, as I said I volunteer for uh the National Association to Protect Children or protect.org. You can go on the web right now and go to protect.org, marvelous organization. We have two arms. We have the um the charity arm uh that educates people and uh we also have our hero program. We do but we also have a, a political action lobbying arm where we directly lobby uh, elected officials to change laws to better protect children from predators. And they're really wonderful people, and I'm on the board. And um, we've been doing this for a while now. We've been quite successful. We've changed laws in seven, eight states, as well as massive change at the federal level, increasing funding for the FBI. Uh, are you familiar? Do you know what an ICAC team is? No, I do not. About? Internet Crimes Against Children. There's the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, and they're under the auspices of the FBI and Homeland Security and what have you. And these are agents, uh, uh, officers, the FBI, who are online, and these are the ones who are tracking child predators and child pornography and watching as people are uploading images where they have sexually abused their own children or children they're babysitting and are uploading the film and the photos to trade with other predators. And uh, these are the people who track this, and they can they can say, okay, oh my God, these images, these are recent. These were just filmed this morning. We can we know where this person is. These kids are in the house. And what we've done is made sure that their funding isn't cut. That these people have the resources, and we even have the hero program where uh, soldiers, people in our military, coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan who may have been injured in battle or not going back to their old job. We're hooking them up with a training program that trains them and then places them as interns with these ICAC teams. And then they can later become employed by uh, the ICAC teams, creating a whole new career. And they also, these are people who have been trained to be in terrifying, dangerous situations and trained how to hunt. And we hook them up with the people who give them the forensic uh, background knowledge and how to deal with this stuff so that these ICAC teams, who are so shorthanded and outmanned and outgunned by these predators, will have enough people on the job so they can go make these arrests and actually get these children out of these homes where they're being sexually abused and filmed. One thing that I thought was uh, especially poignant was your decision to, uh, again, disclose your own situation because you, you felt that it would help pass uh, some important legislation? Exactly. You know, when I was approached by Protect, I wasn't approached because I, I had been abused because they went, well, you're on the last of the bury, you're famous. And I'm like, yes, but guess what? Surprise! Uh, and that was the thing. is I was sexually abused as a child from age six to about age nine. Um, oh. And... Uh, I had I had kept the secret for a long time until really my 20s, and then I, I went and sought therapy and, and did tell friends and family and loved ones and the therapist, obviously. But I'd never gone public. I mean, until anybody, until I was 21, then I didn't, didn't and then I didn't go public. But when uh, I talked with the guys at Protect, they were like, well, we don't have to go public. We're not going to make you do it. And they said, but... Then we were there in California, and we were trying to uh, change the law. We had a bill, it was SB 33, and we were changing the uh, – there's another one of these things. Probably don't know about this. The incest exception. These are people who sexually abuse children, and if they have abused, say, the child next door, perhaps they'd get 20 years. But if they had the foresight to sexually assault their own children or a child they're related to, they can plead out and get a plea agreement under the incest exception. Horrible. So that they do not actually serve a day in jail. 
Horrible. Horrible. Exactly. And this was going on all over the country. And it was particularly egregious in California, the number of people who were walking and reoffending. And we researched it. We saw how many people were walking, how many people reoffended, and how bad. We're like, oh, my God. So we said, this is one of the places that needs this change. New York was particularly awful, too. And Protected changed it in a couple of states. They managed to change it in Arkansas and uh, Illinois and North Carolina. Um, change it. So California was two years behind Arkansas on its incest law. Ponder that for a moment. Uh, <laughs> so that's pretty bad. So we we went into Sacramento. And we actually, you would think everyone when I started this said, "Well, this is a no-brainer. Who would want to keep this law on the books? That's terrible." But they did. It was terribly advantageous to people who didn't want to go to bed. There were people who had a lot of money, and they didn't really want to go to jail for something they saw as inconsequential as sexually abusing their own child. And they had highly paid attorneys who were going to make that happen for them. And they wanted to keep this law on the books. They really did. And we had quite the uphill battle. And so, indeed, I wound up going public. I ended up testifying uh, uh, before the Senate Public Safety Committee and talking with the senator who was sponsoring our bill. And I wound up going on Larry King, on Larry King Live, and talking about the law. And I talked about my own sexual abuse and what happened to me. And I said, there's no way you're getting a better deal by being sexually abused by a person that you're related to. This is, if anything, it is worse. It's not better. This isn't something the psychological be implications alone. For. Yeah, the psychological <laughs> implications alone. Right. You shouldn't be giving someone less time for this. Good Lord, you're getting twice as long. It's horrendous. The damage to people psychologically is much worse. It's absurd. So going on Larry King really did help. It drew attention to an issue. Most people didn't know. They didn't know. Normal people like you did not even know this was on the books. And so there was quite the public outcry. People called Sacramento, and they faxed them and emailed them, and we crashed their server. And then when we went back in to fight for the bill, obviously the climate was rather different because now it was in public. Now voters and constituents actually knew this was happening, so they weren't doing this in secret. They weren't killing this bill in secret, and they had to pass it. So um, we were able to change it in California. We changed it in New York. So we changed it several places. So... Our plan to actually actively change laws to better protect victims, to get more funding for law enforcement and more resources for law enforcement investigators, we're actually quite successful with this. Usually, you know, you talk about this and you say, well, if, if we only had the money, we would do it. We're doing it. And Protect started doing it also with absolutely no money. We, we now have, like, reasonable donations, so we're, we're doing much better. But we actually started, like, on the fly, out of the trunk of a car. Well, one of the benefits of being uh, a famous actor mm -hmm. is a platform, and obviously you've used that for good. Exactly, and that's, that's one of the things I see so often famous people who, they're not doing anything. I mean, not everyone is going to do what I do. I mean, there are certain people who are big activists. Uh, you see George Clooney, Leonardo DiCaprio. There are celebrities who do major, major stuff. Um, you know, Audrey Hepburn you know, did things with people who do things worldwide for the UN, etc. Um, but not everyone's going to do that. But something, I mean, I often say, can't, can't one of those Kardashians just say, like, adopt a puppy, plant a tree? <laughs> something for the love of God. Something other I than mean, getting implants of some type. Yeah, just do something other than just, look, I'm wearing clothes. That's nice. Look, I'm not wearing clothes. Look, I'm wearing expensive clothes. Look, okay, that's lovely. Now do something with your life. I, I think if you're lucky enough and fortunate enough and you've worked to get yourself in a place where everybody knows who you are and, and I'm doing interviews like this and people are hanging on your every word, 
maybe you should say something that might do somebody some good. Well, well, something else that does people good is the gift of laughter. Now, now you talked yeah. a little bit about your stand-up, but I do want to talk about that a little bit. And certainly at the, the end of the interview, I want to give out those websites for those organizations as well. But I want to talk a little bit about stand-up. When, particularly years ago, when you first started this, you stand mm-hmm. in front of an audience yep. and they see Nellie Olson, Nellie Olson, Nellie Olson. How exactly. do you work with that and switch them into, I'm listening to Allison, the comedian? How do you make that but, switch? But absolutely addressing it head on. When I first started stand up and I, I didn't realize how severe <laughs> the connection was, and I actually thought, oh, I'm going to be able to get to stand up and not talk about Little House and Break. Ha ha ha. Yes. That did not work. No matter what I talked about, all that was in their heads is, that's a chick who was Nellie Olson staring at me. <laughs> and they couldn't concentrate. They would not, could not pay attention to anything until I finally like stop and start talking to the audience. And then someone will go, weren't you Nellie Olson? Oh, yes, I was. And then if I talked about that and joked about Nellie Olson and made fun of Michael Landon, then they were like, ah, ha, ha. Then they were okay. And I thought, well, am I a fool? <laughs> not addressing this head on. Clearly this is what's in their heads. And my attempts to try to steer them away, it's like getting me nowhere. And, and there were other people who didn't get it. Went, well, try, maybe you shouldn't talk about it at all. And I go, Oh, do the whole 20 minutes and have them stare at me and wait for me to say Nellie Olson. Oh yeah, that'll go well. And it was in 2002. I said, no, this is the way to do it is to go head on. And uh, so I started a doing confessions of a prairie bitch, the, the one woman show in New York. And I absolutely open with the show. Yes, I am a bitch. Do people have any idea what I've had to put up with you? You'd be a bitch too. And <laughs> <laughs> on. Yes. Yes. I was telling you all said, what do you want from me? And well, it was hilarious. And, and so I just straight on. Yes, I'm her. There you are. Blah. And right away talking about the show and the whole insanity of people hating me and throwing things. Well, of course, they love this. They were like, oh, my God, this is what we were thinking about, what we wanted to know. Told them what they wanted to know immediately. And then made fun of it. Talked about people throwing orange soda at my head during the Christmas parade. And they just demented things that have gone on. And talked about being on Fantasy Island and being sexually harassed by her villages. I mean, (laughs) all of the madness that goes with being in Hollywood. My cuckoo family. Yes, my mother was Gasper and Gumby. All of it. And talk about all of these things. And then I even put in a question and answer segment. I have little cards that actually say, ask Allison anything. (laughs) (laughs) And we hand those out. We encourage them. And they do. They they fill them out. And I get them right before I go on. And I say, all right, we'll do your questions. And during the show, I stop and I take out the questions. And I, I don't preview them. I live. I read off these people's questions and I answer them. And you have some shows coming up, right? Oh, I do at the end of the month, um, in uh, end of April, uh, starting on Tuesday night, the twenty eighth, and running all the way uh, into the first of May, I'm going to be at the Long Center in Austin, Texas. I'm mm. doing like eight shows at the Long Center in Austin, Texas. I'll be there a whole week, and that's going to be really fun. And then I'm going straight from there over to the East Coast, and I'm at Voyeur in Philadelphia. Uh, on uh, Friday night, and then I'm at the Lori Beachman Theater on in New York City on 42nd Street, the Lori Beachman, on Saturday night, May 9th, and I'm doing a Mother's Day brunch show on Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> if in, you're in New York and your mom's really cuckoo for the prairie and likes like risque stand-up comedy, bring mom on down uh, for a Sunday brunch at the Lori Beachman.
That that's fantastic. Um, where can people find more information about all of your work specifically and about the organizations yeah. you care about? I'm I'm everywhere. I'm I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on every I'm on every social media platform they have. Um, <laughs> but you can also go to my website at bonnetheads dot com. Bonnet, B-O-N-N-E-T-S-H-E-A-D-S, no S, B-O-N-N-E-T-H-E-A-D-S, Bonnetheads, Bonnetheads.com, because my fans are such a bunch of Bonnetheads, they're prairie obsessed, Bonnetheads.com, and you can also go to protect.org and read about the work I'm doing there. Well, if we do this show for 10 years, like I've done some of my podcasts, Mm -hmm. I still think that we will have a record for the amount of times that we said, bitch. I think so, yes. <laughs> and I will and you're say, very good. Sometimes talk show hosts will say, well, I can't say bitch. Only the guests can say bitch since it's in the title of your book. So, okay, <laughs> I'll say bitch then. They've been saying it to me. I'm saying it back. Well, one thing I can say, I kind of think you got us all fooled. I don't think you're a bitch at all. I think you're a very nice person. Allison hey, Angram, thank you for I'm joining us today. basically nice. <laughs> I can tell I can tell right. you. Can, she's you. a good thank actress. So Check out all of her stuff. And thank you for tuning in to TV You Grew Up With. I'm Jim Harold, and we'll talk to you next time. Don't touch that guy. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.